0: Welcome again to the Statistical Review edition of Curbside Consult, where we explore the different aspects of trial design, methodology, and statistical analyses commonly published in the journal. My name is Dr. Ahmad Zaheem, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine, and your host for today. Now, the last time I hosted, we were talking about an outbreak of vaping-associated lung disease that seems to have come and gone in the United States. And unless you've been living under a rock, you know that the daily news has now been dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Incidentally, if you have been living under a rock, kudos to you for self-isolating. The reason you may notice a difference in the sound quality of this podcast is that I'm recording from home as the entire NEGM office has shifted to a work-from-home operation. So the viral pathogen in question, sars Coronavirus first emerged in appreciable numbers towards the end of 2019 in the Hubei province of China and rapidly spread thereafter, with the WHO declaring it a pandemic on March 11th, 2020. The numbers are evolving rapidly, but as of March 25th, when we are recording this podcast, there have been approximately 450,000 cases and 20,000 deaths reported in almost 200 countries around the world. For the physicians trying to make sense of the pandemic, the volume of scientific reports, news articles, and editorials on the topic have been staggering, and so we thought it would be appropriate to record a podcast on digesting the data when it comes to outbreak studies, specifically in the context of COVID-19. As a reminder to our listeners, all NEJM COVID-19 content is available for free without subscription at nejm.org slash coronavirus. The paper we will be referencing today is by Guan and colleagues, entitled Clinical Characteristics of Coronavirus Disease 2019 in China, published in the journal online on February 28, 2020. With the rate at which the pandemic is spreading, an article from over a month ago is woefully out of date. However, we chose this article for a number of reasons. It was the first article published by the journal, which gave details not only about patient demographics, but also about treatments and outcomes. Furthermore, with 1,099 patients, it is one of the larger descriptive observational studies on COVID published to date. And finally, with the virus spreading beyond China, there will be a stream of new region-specific descriptive epidemiologic studies that will be published in the upcoming weeks. To help explain how to parse through this data, we are joined once again by Dr. David Harrington at NEJM, and Professor Emeritus at Biostatistics at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome back, Dave. Glad to be here, Ahmad. So, let's start as we always do by describing the study in question. As mentioned, this retrospective observational study is the largest collection of clinical characteristics of infected patients that the journal has published to date. And in late February, these data provided the first comprehensive look at the clinical characteristics as experienced in Wuhan. The study includes 1,099 patients with laboratory-confirmed coronavirus infection who were either hospitalized or treated as outpatients in 552 hospitals in China, where we know the outbreaks initially affected the most people. Dave, why are studies like this so important? But broadly speaking, Ahmad,
1: the most important types of papers in an emerging outbreak are clear, peer-reviewed accounts of hospital-based clinician experience, like Guan paper, population-based studies that can be used to estimate the basic reproduction number of the epidemic, the so-called R0, and initial reports of controlled trials of possible treatments or interventions. The latter two types of studies require time and preparation to be reliable. And in the interim, physicians treating the disease or who expect to in the near future should have systematic descriptive accounts of what their colleagues are experiencing. The Guan paper provides that kind of systematic account the early phase of the epidemic in China in a well-defined population. It may not be a population that represents all of Wuhan or all of China, but it is a full account of patients
0: seen by a physician and subsequently diagnosed with COVID-19. So let's expand a little on how the authors performed the study. They compiled medical records for hospitalized patients and outpatients with laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 as reported to the Chinese National Health Commission, between December 11th, 2019 and January 29, 2020. Laboratory confirmed in this case means positive RT-PCR studies from nasal and pharyngeal sampling.
1: Your description of how the study was done is particularly important and is the reason for some caveats that we have to watch for as we read this piece of the literature. For example, the authors compiled 1,099 medical records which reflected 14.2% of hospitalized cases in China at the time of assessment, and today represents less than 1% of globally aggregated cases. This is like an effect of convenience sampling, that is, studying data that is more accessible, but may be biased because it is not a random sample from a population. These are a very small fraction of patients living in China and thus limits the generalizability of the paper to larger populations living in different environments. Despite these limitations, it was the best data available at the time.
0: In this scenario, the authors were likely faced with the dilemma of disseminating information as rapidly as possible, and so accumulated a subgroup of patients large enough to reveal trends, but likely susceptible to bias.
1: That's correct. We learned that in Wuhan, the median age diagnosis was 47, with an interquartile range from 35 to 58, but that severe cases tended to be older. 25% of the severe cases were over 65. This was the first hint that the virus might disproportionately affect older individuals, something that has been confirmed in later reports. 42% of the patients in Wuhan were female. Later studies have shown that men tend to contract the infection with a higher probability than women.
0: And let's talk more about the actual data extracted from these charts, which can generally be split into three categories. The first is demographic and symptomology information. What you'd expect to see in table one of a study and what actually is reported in table one of this study. These include things like age, sex, residence, exposures, and symptoms.
1: Right. Broadly speaking, this table answers the question who and what. Who are the patients who ended up infected with COVID-19 and how did they present? Physicians might use this information in assessing whether symptoms they are seeing might be associated with COVID-19 in patients that they are faced with in clinic and in deciding whether to order testing for the virus. The data may be helpful in the first attempts to shape a surveillance policy, but it's important to keep in mind that when the Guan paper was published, there were no data on the prevalence of similar symptoms in unaffected individuals. So it was not robust enough for policy-based screening or prevention studies, but it certainly is a start.
0: Right. And Dave, the authors provide the data for all 1,099 patients in column one, but it appears that there are also subgroups.
1: Yes, The authors divided the cases retrospectively as severe or non-severe at the time of admission using the American Thoracic Society guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia. They also created a composite outcome group of patients with severe clinical outcomes. In this case, admission to the ICU, mechanical ventilation, or death. Easily measured characteristics such as age, sex, and the presence of fever are interesting and certainly potentially useful. As long as readers are mindful that this is a retrospective study, so none of these distinctions of outcome were pre-specified. Frequently, authors have descriptive epidemiology studies will group patients together in terms of severity of disease in an attempt to unmask any associations
0: with either clinical or diagnostic testing. So in this study, 15.7% of patients fall into the severe subgroup fall into that composite subgroup that you mentioned, but I don't see any formal statistical analyses comparing the groups.
1: Formal statistical analyses, such as hypothesis tests for possible group differences, are not relevant in this setting and may, in fact, be misleading because the assumptions needed for the validity of a test do not hold here. At NEGM, we felt it was important to put the descriptive data into the public domain without the false sense of security implied by Inappropriate formal statistical methods examining the association of patient characteristics and severity of disease, as those shown in Table 2 in the paper. In a perfect world, clinical decisions would be based on evidence that confirms the value of an intervention. But in the early stages of an epidemic, information in papers such as the Guan manuscript provide valuable information to guide clinical instinct and judgment while waiting for more solid evidence.
0: Right. Some other findings I think that bear reporting from that table, uh, only 0.9% of cases were in the age group of zero to 14 years, which is consistent with newer sources reporting the lower incidence of disease in the youth. Not surprisingly, 72.3% of patients had contact with a Wuhan residence and very few, only 1.9% had contact with wildlife. The median incubation period is reported at four days with an interquartile range of two to seven. Finally, comorbidities were reported in 23.7% of patients with hypertension being most common. Anything else to comment on, Dave?
1: Well, as expected, 173 patients with severe disease. The median age was higher at 52. Furthermore, in the 67 patients in the composite subgroup, the age was even higher at 63. Smoking rates were higher in these groups, as were comorbidities. The distribution of comorbidity was different as well, with more prominence of diseases like COPD and diabetes but I'd like to make a point about the incubation period, which you mentioned earlier. We must be cautious about that data. The estimated time for incubation is based on a patient's recall of when they're exposed, then when they first exhibited symptoms. Both of those dates are subject to error, since in an epidemic that is spreading rapidly, it is difficult to know when one was exposed. Also, the low number of cases in the zero to 14 age group is interesting, but it is an example of how a study like this can be misleading. It was possible in the early stage of COVID-19, when there was very little data on the attack rate of the virus, that young people with the disease tended to have minor symptoms or be asymptomatic. So this hospital-based series should not be used to infer the population incidence of COVID-19 was very low in Europe.
0: I see, and that is important to note. Now, when it does come to symptoms, the authors report only 43.8% of patients had fever on admission, which is pretty surprising to me. That number increased to 88.7% in hospitalized patients. And although cough was the most common symptom affecting 67.8% of patients, gastrointestinal symptoms were rarely reported, which is in contrast to other uh, more recent reports.
1: Exactly. So now we know a little bit about who these patients are and what they look like within the limitations of a descriptive study like this. The second category of data acquisition is for diagnostic testing results. Again, the idea here is to identify a pattern in diagnostic testing among infected patients, if one exists. This data are summarized in Table 2, subgrouping patients by severity and composite outcome as before.
0: So looking at Table 2, most patients have abnormal chest radiographs or CT scans, and the most common abnormalities seen were ground class opacity and local patchy shadowing. These aren't particularly surprising findings in patients who have a viral pneumonia. Uh, Cytopenias and other lab derangement were also common in sicker patients. This includes C-reactive proteins, lactate dehydrogenases, and uh, transaminases. I would classify these as expected findings and say that patients who are sicker in real life look sicker on paper as well.
1: That's about all you can say. Often, this aspect of descriptive studies can be hypothesis-generating, especially when it comes to establishing a diagnosis or determining prognosis. We see this commonly in risk stratification scores that are ultimately prospectively validated, which this is not. I would agree that this provides very limited amount of information in the context of COVID-19, where no definitive diagnostic tests exist outside of an
0: RT-PCR. Okay, so uh, our third and final category of data is summarized in Table 3. This table describes the clinical course, treatment, and outcomes of patients in this study.
1: And remember that this is not a clinical trial. Patients did not receive a specific therapy because they met certain criteria. Much of the treatment was likely physician-directed based on clinical judgment. But trends can be reported, and the data can certainly lead to hypotheses that can be tested in a controlled way.
0: Yeah, and some data that I found interesting was uh, 58% of patients received intravenous antibiotics 35.8% 35.8% received oseltamivir, and 18.6% received glucocorticoids. Those numbers all went up if you had severe disease or were a part of the composite group.
1: So more severe cases receiving broader treatment is a known hospital practice and not surprising. But there are other important tidbits in this table. 38.7% of patients diagnosed with severe disease on admission ended up requiring mechanical ventilation which is something hospitals need to think about when considering their resources for ventilation equipment and isolation rooms. 8.1% of patients in the severe category died, while a remarkable 22.4% of patients in the composite subgroup died. Another hugely important point that is often missed is that 93.6% of these patients were hospitalized, really illustrating the point that this is not generalizable or in non-hospitalized patients. The study clearly skews to the sicker individual.
0: Okay, so we have a study that cannot be used for definitive conclusions, but is the paper still helpful?
1: Yes, very
0: much so. When
1: a new outbreak is identified, the preliminary steps of managing that outbreak are to confirm its existence, verify the diagnosis, and create a case definition. You saw this once last year with the vaping epidemic, and now again with coronavirus. Once you've verified the diagnosis, and created a case definition, you're ready to start accumulating cases and report descriptive epidemiology.
0: Right, and this is the stage that the world is at now with corona, correct?
1: Yes, expect to see a lot of descriptive epidemiology coming out in the near future. Because of the urgency surrounding the epidemic, additional data on the epidemiology of the disease will be released as it becomes available, probably in piecemeal fashion from various groups or in repeated iterations, as more information becomes available. This allows for studying trends, geographic variations, and different effects of different clinical practice. And it may provide clues about etiology, transmission, and natural history of the disease. The data can be used to develop testable hypotheses for prevention and treatment, but it can also be used to implement control measures and maintain surveillance. We know that there are ongoing randomized trials in numerous parts of the world, including the United States, have implemented control measures in an effort to curb spread. Over time, as more cases are collected from varying populations, we'll have a better understanding of the clinical course of the disease and be able to estimate important statistical properties such as the attack rate and the basic reproduction number. For now, these numbers will be adjusted, hopefully in small amounts as descriptive studies accumulate.
0: Obviously, when it comes to therapy, uh, these data come from a time before hydroxychloroquine or lopinavir-ritonavir. And so none of these patients received that therapy. We know in particular with lopinavir-ritonavir how challenging it can be to conduct a randomized controlled trial given the current situation. Descriptive studies of disease outcomes will be an important tool going forward in trying to determine what therapies are useful, correct?
1: Yes. Again, with the caveat that these are not randomly selected patients and much of the analysis will be done retrospectively with the associated biases that come with that.
0: Right, understood. So let's summarize the study and what we've learned. Um, So this article by Guan and colleagues is a retrospective, descriptive epidemiological study of a non-random group of patients in China with laboratory confirmed COVID-19 infection. It is a small fraction of total cases and likely skews toward more severe cases that required hospitalization. The cases are also from early on in the pandemic before there was reliable information regarding the nature of the infection, how it's transmitted, and how it could potentially be treated. That said, the data is valuable. The median age of cases is 47. Most patients were exposed to other humans from Wuhan as opposed to wildlife, and fever was present in less than half of patients on admission. Gastrointestinal symptoms were not frequently reported in contrast to things like cough, sputum production, and fatigue. Diagnostic testing may not be particularly helpful, But sicker patients have more deranged laboratory work and do worse, although the overall mortality is reported at 1.4% in those who had severe disease as determined at the time of admission. And although treatment conclusions cannot be made, many patients receive some combination of antibiotics, oseltamivir, and glucocorticoid.
1: More and more of these studies will be published, and new iterations of data from China are forthcoming. These have already spurred some clinical trials, both for diagnosis and treatment, and we patiently await those
0: and hopefully we'll have a chance to discuss those studies in the future. Dave Harrington, thank you again for joining us and please stay safe. My pleasure, as always. For more information about COVID-19, please visit nejm.org coronavirus, where the journal has compiled pertinent publications regarding this outbreak that are free to access without subscription. We are currently hosting two discussion topics on the Resident360 website at resident360.nejm.org discussion. One is entitled, On the front lines with COVID 19, what can we learn from each other? Where healthcare workers are sharing their insights and experience with the current pandemic. The other is entitled COVID 19 Case Reports, where we are collecting and sharing information regarding individual cases with teaching points and compiling that data to do a bit of descriptive epidemiology ourselves. Please consider submitting your cases to this discussion, even if you have a quote unquote routine case. Sharing your cases on the discussion board does not preclude subsequent publication in a peer reviewed journal. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Crips Consult. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Binding, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks to my co-fellows, Drs. Krista Nottage and Ken Wu, and to our NEJM educator, Dr. Opie Hanblick. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at NEJM.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the NEJM.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine and Resident 360, this is Dr. Armand Zahim signing off.